Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer, Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. <laughs> Sorry, I was on mute for a second there, but I didn't want to delay any longer, so I rushed in. <laughs> okay, uh, let's okay. Let's let's dive into the news. Let's talk about Quentin Tarantino, who uh, since he started making films, I think people have compared his films to almost like novels because they have those like kind of chapter headings, and uh, you know they, they they play with time in a way that novels do. And now he is wait, he's writing a novel, Chris. What is going on here? Right. He's he's been teasing this idea of writing a novel for a few years. And in fact, he actually said in previous interviews that uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood originally was going to be a novel before he turned it into a movie. Um, but now, as we all know, he is retiring, maybe. And even though he's retiring, he has also said that, you know, he might not make movies anymore, but he's still going to create stuff. And he did this uh, new, um, long-raging, really great uh, – it's not even an interview. It's a conversation between him and Martin Scorsese, which is like um, a must-read. And it's really long. I haven't even finished reading it yet. But it's – it's if you like those two filmmakers, and you should, um, it's, it's a great read. And they talk about their careers. They talk about their work. They talk about other people's work. And during the course of this conversation, Tarantino mentions that – he is currently writing a book and um, he, it's a really long quote. So I advise everyone to read it on slash.com. But the gist of it is it's, it's a story about a world war two veteran who comes back from war and he's really jaded. And he, he also thinks Hollywood movies are bullshit just because he's seen <laughs> so much in the war. Uh, and, you know, he goes to Hollywood movie, you know, movies made in Hollywood and he just thinks they've become really, phony and pretentious and his time in the war has just made him sort of like not enjoy movies like he used to and then uh he starts discovering um foreign films like films by kurosawa and fellini and godard and um it starts it like sort of awakens a whole new 
uh, appreciation of of cinema in this guy's mind that you know it was like a whole a whole sort of subgenre not a subgenre but a whole sort of world of film that he was never aware of before and he's suddenly discovering it so um that sounds really cool to me that's uh, i mean i would de- i will definitely read this if it ever comes out um uh, it just sounds really interesting it also sounds kind of vaguely like it ties into um what's by time hollywood LA because uh brad pitt's character cliff booth booth is also like a jaded world war ii veteran so it's sort of like just a thing that Tarantino has on his mind right now, I guess. Hmm. But I'm also curious, like one of the reasons Tarantino is, you know, quote unquote, going to be retiring from film is because it wasn't it. He said he was afraid he was like running out of like insightful, interesting stories to tell. I mean, he gives a different reason every, <laughs> I I've seen multiple reasons. One reason is that, you know, he wants to settle down a little bit. I mean, he just got married. His, his wife is actually pregnant right now. So, you know, I've read an interview where he's, you know, he said he wants to sort of slow down a bit and, and become a family man, as hard as it is to believe. Oh, I haven't read Tarantino those. As a family man. But yeah, yeah, that's, so. that's crazy. Most of the interviews with him I've seen have been like about him talking about his like favorite filmmakers and how they like kept on making films late into their career that had diminishing returns and kind of, you know, hurt their legacies. And he didn't want to do that. Like, you know, he felt at one point he's told all the stories that he has to tell. It's just yeah, so but, strange. You know, at the same time, you know, a, a film is, is a different animal than a novel. Like, even though, you know, like you said, he, he has a very novelistic approaches to his movies. I mean, you can tell a film. I mean, you could tell a book, a story in a book, a lot differently than you tell it in a film. You know, you don't have to rely on uh, you know like camera angles and stuff like that. So maybe if he feels like he doesn't want to dry up creatively when it comes to directing, he can still tell a, a good story. So there is that. I feel like I, I have a hard time these days reading fiction. Like most of the books, I if I end up reading something is like nonfiction, like a memoir or, you know, about Hollywood or something like that. Uh, Brad, would you be interested in reading a novel from Quentin Tarantino? Uh, interested? Sure. Do I have the time? Fucking no. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that probably sums it up. Uh, you know, another director and writer, writer-director who has often – been you know said to be overridden is kevin smith and he's coming he's brought in jay and silent bob back uh they're coming to theaters and to, to home video with their new movie and uh it seems like he's also this time promises that we're actually going to get a clerks three brad what do we know yes so jay and silent bob reboot comes out uh later this month it gets a limited theatrical release from fathom events on october 15th one night only and then you can also see it along with a double feature uh, with Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back on October 17th. Um, and then there's a whole rolling road show that they're doing where Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes are accompanying the movie at a bunch of cities across the United States. They've, they've sold out pretty much all of their shows and everything. And it kind of felt like this sort of farewell to the View Askew universe, maybe like a last hurrah for Jay and Silent Bob. Uh, they're bring, bringing back all these characters from all the previous movies like clerks and mall rats and chasing amy and even dogma uh and so it kind of f- felt like you know this was just sort of a uh, one last round with uh with these characters but apparently clerks 3 is back on the table 
because Kevin Smith recently uh, reunited with Clerks co-star Jeff Anderson, who plays Randall, uh, the one who works at the video store. And it sounds like they talked about finally making Clerks 3 happen. And there was a, a, a chance that this almost happened back in 2016, 2017, uh, when Kevin Smith had already written a script for Clerks 3, uh, and they got funding together, but Jeff Anderson didn't want to do it. He liked the script, but he just didn't feel compelled to do another movie at that time. And apparently Kevin trying to convince him to do it and the whole process uh, resulted in them kind of having a little bit of a falling out and they didn't talk to each other for a while. But at this, at some recent um, event done by uh, Lilu Multiprops, which is like this uh, auction house that sells movie props and memorabilia and stuff, they were both at a signing event and they happened to be there and uh, talk to each other, work things out. And now, uh, him and Brian O'Halloran and Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes are all down to come back. And so, but this is something that Kevin Smith just, just started writing. So they're not, he's not even using the old Clerks 3 script. He's doing something completely new. And he says, it'll be a movie about how you're never too old to completely change your life. It'll be a movie about how a decade spanning friendship finally confronts the future. It'll be a movie that takes us back to the beginning, a return to the cradle of civilization in the great state of New Jersey. So, <laughs> Uh, it'll bring, you know, th- th- it kind of works out because this will bring the viewers universe, as it's called, full circle back to the original Clerks. But I also feel like this, the way he describes it is kind of the same lessons that these two characters learned in Clerks 2. Because they were both kind of having a bit of a midlife crisis and their friendship was hitting some hurdles and they were growing up a bit. And then they decided to, you know, buy the quick stop themselves and work and, and work there you know again so i wonder what's in the store i guarantee you it's all inspired by kevin smith's kind of growth as a person since he had his uh near-death experience when he had a heart attack not too long ago so i'm sure he's uh you know learned some life lessons since then and because of the friendships that he's rekindled with people like ben affleck and jeff anderson i bet you there's you know some stuff that he feels like he wants to write about with these characters yeah, and he's also had some shifts in his career. You know, he was a big writer-director, then he shifted more into a commentator and podcaster, and uh, is now, you know, I guess going back to the films. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting what he—I'm guessing it's probably going to say something that's very meaningful and uh, personal to him, which is good, because I think the best Kevin Smith movies are like Chasing Amy, which, uh, you know, come from that kind of place. Uh, but okay, let's talk about J.J. Abrams, a friend of Kevin Smith, uh, who is, you know, promoting Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and he's already, before the film has gotten coming out, is already having to defend it uh, because, you know, that's what Star Wars directors have to do these days. Uh, Chris, tell us about it. Yes. So um, by now, even if you're trying to avoid spoilers, I feel like you know that uh, the Emperor uh, Palpatine is in uh, Star Wars. Palpatine. Pal- oh, I'm so. Please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> I've always pronounced it that way, and I guess I'm wrong. But um, <laughs> uh, that that character is in the the Rise of Skywalker. Um, his voice is heard in the trailer. His big dumb face is on the poster, and a lot of people, myself included, ha- are a little perplexed by this. Um, you know, I, I loved The Force Awakens. I really loved The Last Jedi. I am looking forward to seeing how this trilogy concludes. But the one thing that's really making me nervous is uh, the return of the Emperor. Because as anyone 
you know, familiar with this franchise knows he is very much dead. Not only did he get, he get tossed down that whatever reactor thing, but it exploded. And so there's, there's really no way he could have survived on top of that. The thing that's really bugging me is there's been zero hint of the emperor's presence in these last two movies. I mean, you know, I guess you could argue. Well, that I like, look, we I, don't I know where you... Snoke came from or right. That's I mean... what I was going to say. You could sort of argue that, but there's been not even like the tiniest bit of hint of the emperor. And if like, even if there had just been like this, the a smidgen of that hint, I would be less apprehensive about this, but because there hasn't been, I'm really, on the fence about this, but I'm, I'm waiting to see how it plays out in the film itself. Um, JJ Abrams for his part says, uh, in a new interview with empire, uh, some people feel like we shouldn't revisit the idea of Palpatine. Did I say it right that time? Yes. Okay. And I completely understand (laughs) that. But if you're looking at these nine films as one story, I don't know many books where the last few chapters have nothing to do with those that have come before. If you look at the first eight films, all the setups of what we're doing in the last, uh, I mean, the rise of Skywalker are there in plain view. And look, I, I get what he's saying there. There is a logic to that. And again, I will, I will, I will reserve judgment for the final product. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really, really nervous about this because I don't know. Just to me, to me, this, this reeks of fan service this is like oh remember this guy he's back like you but know, i don't think I... it's fan service because i don't think there's like a like a huge core of people that are excited that uh, to see emperor palpatine return like if it was darth vader maybe but like i feel like it's I not yes yeah i don't it just <sighs> to me, i don't know I, I i will agree when i first heard this uh and i heard this about a year ago and i think we talked about it off off mic uh, like while we were recording a podcast the the pit of my stomach dropped when i heard this because it sounded like such a horrible idea and um but the more and more i thought about it and the more like i've spent time thinking about this i i think jj is right i don't know it's all in the execution right Right. but but i i do think if you think of this as a saga and they're going to be heavily promoting this not as the end of this trilogy but the end of the entire skywalker saga and if there it is it's unfortunate, but you know Carrie Fisher dying, uh, Mark Hamill's uh, character being killed on la- in the last episode. Uh, you know it doesn't leave them much room to have that that closure, that bookend to this whole epic story. And I feel like the only way to do that is actually to bring back the Emperor. But I don't know. I mean, it just feels it's just I don't know. Like why not just have like Job of the Hut show up at this point? He was in the other movies too. Why can't like oh he's back look there he is it just it just seems really really but, cheap but jo- to me. Job the Hut was a side quest. He was like a bump in the road. The emperor like this is the Star Wars and the person who started the Star Wars was the emperor. I know, but the his I really feel like his story is is finished. I mean, his whole thing was trying to turn. Luke to the dark side, and uh, you know Darth Vader threw him down that. What if it's not finished though? What if a piece of the Emperor has been in front of us this whole time, and her <laughs> name is Ray? Ugh. Um, but the the other thing is, like you know, in the prequels, the the, the Emperor or uh, Palpatine basically mentions that his master had found a way to cheat death. Like so, so there is some seeds to plant here. I'm not sure how Palpatine is back 
in this right. film. But like well, it's well, it's not it's not as if it hasn't there aren't seeds along the way. I guess. And I as in in doing research for this story, I looked up the whole uh, you know, force ghost thing. And in the films at least, there haven't been Sith force ghosts, but according to the Star Wars Wikipedia, there is uh, a history of that. It's not sort of the same thing. It's it's, but there have been Sith ghosts, and it it also says that Sith ghosts tend to be bound to um, an object or a location that they oh. uh, had had uh, interaction with, and as we know from the trailers. Uh, our heroes in the rise of Skywalker end up going to uh, like the wreckage of the death star. So I maybe it's like, it's like the death star is like a haunted house and Palpatine is, is, is creeping around there like a ghost. But I, 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 I feel like you could get on board for that one, Chris, a haunted house in the star Wars. Look, universe. As much as I like ghosts, I, I just don't know. But like I said, I will, I will reserve judgment. I hope it works out because like I said, I, I really like the last two movies and it would really suck if it ends up being a, a terrible conclusion. So yeah. I finger, fingers crossed it all works out. Well, this isn't the end of Star Wars. There's also uh, other Star Wars movies in development. There's some Star Wars TV shows in development, one of which is the Obi-Wan Kenobi TV series, which has found a director. Brad, what do we know? Yes, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series was officially announced uh, back during the D23 Expo, though we had heard rumblings of it for a while, previously as a movie, uh, sometimes as a movie trilogy, and then just before the news actually was officially announced, rumors of a series uh, after Ewan McGregor had officially signed on to star, and now the project has a director in the form of Deborah Chow, uh, who has some experience with Star Wars because she was also working on The Mandalorian, which is the first live-action Star Wars series coming to Disney Plus this fall. Uh, she's also worked on a bunch of other shows like Better Call Saul, American Gods, uh, Lost in Space, Jessica Jones, Mr. Robot. So she has uh, quite a lot of television experience. She's definitely got the right uh, experience to take on a show like Star Wars. Uh, and so, yeah, this is uh, great to hear. I'm, I'm very excited for the Obi-Wan series simply because i like ewan mcgregor as obi-wan i'm not necessarily sure uh about the story that this will tell uh i, I feel like we already got a lot of what obi-wan was up to during the time between revenge of the sith uh and star wars a new hope especially uh, when it comes to what was revealed in star wars rebels so i'm interested to see what else there is to tell here about our our old ben kenobi yeah I was going to say that, you know, Star Wars has been criticized for not having many female directors. Uh, Deborah Chow now becomes the, I was going to say third, but actually she was the first <laughs> live action Star Wars director. Uh, her alongside uh, Bryce Dallas Howard on The Mandalorian. Uh, I really liked Chow's work on Better Call Saul. She did this episode last season. I know we talked about it on the water cooler or on the, uh, the podcast last year or earlier this year, it was the episode where it began with this montage showing Jimmy and, um, oh my God, what's her name? Chris, the, the Kim? Kim, yes. Jimmy and Kim and how their lives were going in two different directions. It was like the split screen opening montage. And I, I've 
tried to find it online. It's hard to find. Uh, but uh, it, it was just so brilliantly put together. So I'm excited that she's back uh, for more Star Wars. And, and, and the fact that they are hiring her to bring her back after she's done two episodes of The Mandalorian, I think, shows some faith in her as a director. So uh, that's exciting. Um, let's talk about some more TV stuff. Uh, Stranger Things season four uh, has been announced uh, with a teaser trailer that gives us some some hints. Chris, what do we know? Uh, yes, we all knew this was coming, but Netflix made it official. Stranger Things four is is a go at Netflix, and Netflix actually signed an overall deal with the Duffer Brothers who created Stranger Things to make. Uh, even more stuff, like uh, more TV shows and and even movies. So that they're they're pretty much uh, locked in there at Netflix. And um, in honor of the the Stranger Things four announcement, there was a little teaser released. It didn't really have much footage as you would expect because they haven't shot anything yet. Um, it shows you know the upside down, but then it ends with uh, a tagline that says "We're not in Hawkins anymore." And Hawkins is of course the town where most of the show has been set so the question is what does that mean and um i have my theories the internet has their theories uh without going into i don't want to give away spoilers just in case somehow hasn't somehow watched season three yet but season three ended with one character seemingly seeming like he or she was dead only to possibly turn up in russia so my guess is Season four is going to involve, you know, uh, jumping, uh, you know, out of America entirely and, and involving that character finding their way back out of Russia to, um, you know, America. Yeah. Uh, where that what that means for the other characters, I don't I, I have no idea, but well, I guess we'll see. And you also have another character that like literally is moving away from Hawking at the end of that season as well. So right, yes, um, that too. So yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see, and uh, I'm sure you know in a few months or whatever we'll get a, another teaser trailer that will give us all all the titles for the season four episode so we can theorize and speculate. Another bit of interesting news today is Ava DuVernay is turning DC's dmz comic book into a series for hbo max brad what do we know yes in case you didn't know there is a comic book called dmz not tmz uh not the yokels who talk about celebrities and (laughs) suck on water bottles uh dmz as in demilitarized zone it's a dc comics title uh that takes place in uh, a world where a second civil war has split up the united states created a lot of uh turmoil and chaos and Ava DuVernay is going to turn this into a TV series at HBO Max, or at least hopes to, because they've ordered a pilot for the series. So they're very likely to determine whether or not they want to proceed with a series after they see the pilot. Uh, she'll be directing it and executive producing it, along with Roberto Panino, who worked on Westworld. And he's also writing the pilot as well. And uh, what's interesting here is that the synopsis for the actual comic uh, says it focuses on a male journalist named Maddie Roth. Uh, he follows a veteran war, uh, war journalist into the heart of the DMZ, and things go wrong. He gets lost, uh, and he has to try and find his way off the island, uh, or potentially just stay uh, in the DMZ and crack a story that most journalists uh, would never get a chance to. Uh, so that's the main character in the comic, but Deadline, who reported the story, said that the main character is a female medic on the island who is trying 
day in and day out to help keep residents alive while trying to also find her lost son. Uh, in case I didn't say this, the DMZ is Manhattan uh, in <laughs> New York. And so uh, as the story unfolds, this woman, this medic, would become a source of hope in an America that has lost all sense of the idea. So it's um, it seems like maybe they, they've shifted focus a little bit because this medic character is actually the second lead in the comic series. So perhaps the TV series will focus more on the comic's secondary lead, and then the journalist character might end up being uh, the secondary lead in the series. But we're not sure. That's just speculation on our part. Yeah, I I read this comic when it first came out. I think it was like in the like height of Why the Last Man, and this was from Vertigo, and uh, which I guess now is DC. It's just DC proper. I don't really remember much about it, but I do remember enjoying it. Uh, I hey Fred... hey Peter Peter J- hello Jacob. Uh, hi, I heard you mention that DMZ is being turned into a TV show, and now I'm here. Uh, have you read DMZ? Oh, yeah, I've read all of it. Uh, I would love to chime in here if you if you would have me. Yeah, uh, tell us about DMZ. Like, why should we care about DMZ? Uh, DMZ, it ran for 72 issues, and like all comics that have that length, had its ups and downs. Uh, but it's ended up being a really refreshing take on the war comic, because instead of being you know a war story following soldiers, the main character was a journalist, or in this case, a medic. And the setting uh, didn't really find the main characters interacting with soldiers on either side very much. I mean, the American government doesn't want anybody knowing their plans. The um, militants um, who are uprising from these, uh, you know, far right group, they're not going to go talk to a, uh, a journalist from the United States proper. So he ends up finding stories about the people of New York. It ends up being a comic about Manhattan and about um, New Yorkers. And 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 end up finding really interesting stories about how if you're in Manhattan and suddenly you're caught from the rest of the world, your streets are a war zone. Uh, eventually, things are going to have to become a new normal. Uh, if you if you trap forever, how do you eventually feed yourself? How do you entertain yourself? What kind of cultures and subcultures form? Will people start forming local elections and governments to try to maintain the world they have? And DMZ is less of a war comic and more of a uh, comic about society and a civilization sort of building itself anew from within, you know, the worst possible situation. And that's why I think Ava DuVernay is very interesting here because it's less comic about military and more about uh, social structures and how people maintain them or rebuild them in time of crisis. It's, it gets really interesting, uh, especially as it goes on and, and tries to answer these bigger questions. So that's why, you know, you may hear Second Civil War and think action show, but no, this is very much up Ava DuVernay's alley. Yeah, um, I, I know like a f- years ago, maybe like 2014, 2015, the, sci-fi was planning on an adaptation of this with like some writers from Mad Men. Um, it's going to be uh, – I, I think it's a step up that they're going to be on HBO Max because it seems like they'll probably have a bigger budget, uh, which is kind of needed. If you're going to do like a, a story set in a war – written uh new york city right like like this isn't something it was just like you know stories done in small rooms i'm assuming yeah and it it, scope is big and my favorite stories from this comic aren't even like the big um massive war scenes but the scene towards like was new york city look like three years into being a war zone and you know the culture has changed society has changed people dress and act has changed you can do a lot of interesting set dressing and a lot of you know costuming a lot of reimagining what New York would actually look like. And the comic does that really well on the page. So I'm very curious to see with, with an HBO budget, how they can do that here. Yeah. I'm excited for this. Uh, you know what, Jacob, now that you're here, it, it, this is exciting because you just wrote up the story about uh, black widow, which 
could potentially be a spoiler. So if you don't want any spoilers for Black Widow, uh, you know, you can tune out now. But it, is, it deals with someone who has appeared on set uh, in the in a, there's been set photos of this character. Uh, so you have been warned. Yeah. So some set paparazzi photos that we did not run, but you can find a link to them out there. Uh, feature William Hurt on the Black Widow set. And you may know that William Hurt plays uh, Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross in the MCU. He's the uh, ma- the main human villain in The Incredible Hulk. And then later he resurfaced as Secretary of State in Captain America Civil War. Had small roles in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And he's sort of, you know, the bureaucratic and military, you know, uh, wall standing in the way of the Avengers. Um, sort of the, uh, not, not, quite, not quite a villain, but sort of the guy who's there to, you know, say you're, you're banging too much stuff up, Avengers. Stop it. Um, but in the comics, he he's an ongoing Hulk villain. He's he's been that way since the '60s, and uh, so it. Let's start from another angle here. If you look at these photos, hmm. uh, William Hurt, who is 69 years old, is he's a healthy guy. We saw him if you just this year in Endgame. For a man of his age, he looks very healthy. But in these photos, he's wearing baggy clothes. His makeup looks gaunt. He's leaning on a cane. So we're already seeing uh, Ross looking weaker for some reason, visibly aged. And we should say we saw him in Endgame before or wait, right after the wait, when was it in the timeline we saw him? I think it was like right. We saw him at the, at the funeral scene, the very end. Okay, so we did see him in the funeral scene. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting about this is that um, well, you're right. We see him later in the timeline looking healthy. So um, unless these are very bad photographs of William Hurt, we can assume that they're making him look aged and weaker. So you and I talked about this, Peter, offline, about why would he look like this? And probably the most famous modern uh, Ross storyline is he becomes Red Hulk. Literally, he starts experimenting on himself to become a a weapon capable of defeating the Hulk, uh, becomes a red-skinned version of the Hulk who maintains all of his intelligence and tactical mind and becomes the antagonist for the Hulk, eventually sort of an anti-hero who teams up with heroes, occasionally fights against them, and is often associated with, uh, let's say, more morally gray teams uh, in the Marvel Universe. Like, he, he forms a group called the Thunderbolts uh, at one point, uh, which is, like, you know, anti-heroes and villains, sort of a suicide squad for the Marvel Universe. So my off-the-wall theory here, Peter, is not just that uh, William Hurt Ross is back in Black Widow, uh, but we're setting up Red Hulk, we're setting up a... Um, a him not necessarily being the main villain going forward, but setting up the idea of maybe uh, government superheroes maybe becoming more of a, a bigger force. Uh, am I crazy here? I mean, I know nothing about Hulk, but uh, I mean, I can't imagine William Hurt as a Hulk. <laughs> I mean, well, I remember the reason William Hurt took the Incredible Hulk job in 2008 to begin with was that he is apparently a lifelong Hulk fan. So I can imagine him being all in on doing the Mark Ruffalo mocap Hulk thing. I think he'd, <laughs> hopefully he'd have a kick doing it. I want to see video of him on set in that gray suit, like jumping on things and you know throwing stuff. Yeah, and of course we're all spitballing here, but uh, my whole thing is that we're looking toward a blank slate of the Marvel universe. I mean, if the first ten years of this experiment built towards Thanos and the Infinity Stones, what are we building toward now? And I think that you know with a She-Hulk series coming and Hulk being smart now, you know, Marvel is clearly not afraid to get weird with the Hulk family. So bringing in Red Hulk and setting him up as a possible antagonist or ally and maybe setting up, you know, a Thunderbolts, a, a, a sort of an anti-Avengers uh, made up of people who um, Ross has handpicked, you know, probably bad sorts who he can control is maybe the step forward. It's the way to go and maybe lean towards something. I know um, one thing we're, battling, we're banding about Peter is the idea of Dark Reign, which was a uh, comic storyline that saw 
Uh, essentially, the villains take over the universe, uh, but not in like a world domination way. In a the world is afraid, these guys step up and say, "Hey, we can protect you." And suddenly, you know, Norman Osborn is running Shield. So I'm wondering if maybe we're looking at that kind of future where you know maybe instead of Norman Osborn because he's a Spider-Man character and Sony rights to deal with, we're looking at you know Ross and other characters stepping into that storyline. Once again, all speculation, but you know what? We'll see him right in three or five years. I mean, this does bring into question because we know. I mean, we do we know where Black Widow takes place in the timeline? Uh, supposedly after Civil War, but before Infinity War. So we've seen Ross, and he's healthy, you know, years after the snap. So if he's experimenting on himself and he becomes the Red Hulk, when he becomes a human, is he back to normal? That's a really good question. Um, I, I feel like you can bend that either way. I feel like <laughs> there's so many char- there's so many characters in Marvel whose whole thing is, you know, I'm dying of something. Oh, no, superpowers will save me. Um but it's always different. Sometimes like, oh, I'm completely cured. Hooray. Other times, oh, no, I'm still dying when I'm no longer superpowered. So uh, who knows? <laughs> I, I feel like they they there's, there's room for them to take it whatever direction they want to take it. it, it it's crazy that the, like the one of the two properties that Marvel Studios does not have complete control out of, like, you know, or Spider-Man and Hulk. And like, you know, that's why we're not getting a Hulk movie, because Universal has like some of the rights there. Uh, why would they be setting all the stuff up in the Hulk universe without us actually being able to get a Hulk movie? I think that's exactly it. You can't get a Hulk movie. So you got to scatter the Hulk family elsewhere. You got to have them pop up everywhere else to make it worthwhile. Because as you said, uh, any solo Hulk movie has to have Universal involved. And that's never going to happen uh, at this yeah. point. Uh, but if you have, you know, Hulk pop up in Thor Ragnarok, and you have Red Hulk be introduced in Black Widow, or at least the seeds of that planted in Black Widow. Uh, you have a She-Hulk TV series in Disney Plus. You're able to, you know, take this really rich, weird group of characters and have fun with them and scatter them about, as opposed to having to give Universal a piece of the pie. Okay. That is a lot for this one episode. So this brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find links to all the stories we mentioned on today's podcast in the show notes. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.